Chapter 17. Just Lock It Away. In Dostoevsky's incredibly long and uneventful novel, Crime and Punishment, which I read just to be able to brag to no one who cares that I actually finished the dang thing and to pretend that I'm really quite bohemian and cultured when in fact I like lighting things on fire and watching demolition derbies, the protagonist, Raskolnikov, who is also the antagonist because he murdered someone and then lost his mind until he confessed all, so now you know what happens, you don't have to read the whole thing, says, man grows used to everything, the scoundrel. Raskolnikov utters this zinger after surveying the terrible conditions that his fellow poor people live in, and in some ways, this is very true. I've been known to say to people that guilt is not an effective motivator for me since I've been feeling guilty since I was four. It'll take a bit more than that to move me from my stubborn hideaway. Not even the rank smell of rot was always enough to get me to take action. When I was staying in the bedroom that I mentioned before, where the haunted doorway was a conduit to both hell and a makeshift urinal, I was sick with the stomach flu. Now, I wasn't known to be a high-maintenance sick person. I just puked and slept as expected, unlike Spencer, whose penchant for puking in the worst possible places was legendary. For example... I remember Spencer lying on the couch in our family room as a young boy, sick with the stomach flu. My mom thoughtfully placed an empty ice cream bucket on the floor near his head, telling him that if he needed to puke, although she would never have used that word, that all he needed to do was roll over and the bucket would be right there. I'm not sure if Spencer misheard her or didn't hear her at all, because the next time he needed to puke, he rolled over, but in the opposite direction, puking not into the waiting bucket, but into the space between the couch cushions. Another time, when we were riding on the gigantic ferry between Nova Scotia and Newfoundland, Spencer got seasick. There were several decks of cars and passengers on this ferry, almost all of which featured windows or ledges with a sheer drop straight down to the ocean below. The only exception to this was the top deck, which was tiered. Of course, this is where Spencer's seasickness became overwhelming, and like most who feel overcome in this way, he raced to the edge of the boat, hoping to discharge his breakfast into the waves below. Unfortunately, as I said, this was the one deck that was actually tiered, so instead of his vomit harmlessly becoming fish food, it splashed onto the deck below, luckily missing any fellow passengers. Anyway, Spencer was not a great puker, but I didn't really have any issues in this area. As I have previously established, however, I did have a bit of an issue making what I felt were arduous and inconvenient trips to the bathroom. This not only applied to urinating, unfortunately, and this particular bout of flu left me lying in my bed, half asleep, and completely drained of energy. I had reached the stage of puking where there was nothing really left to produce but the most disgusting bile and acidic nastiness that the human body can manufacture. It was this concoction that I retched into a small bowl next to my bed because I was simply too weak and tired to make it to the bathroom in time. See? I did it like I was supposed to. Then I got weird. For some reason, I pushed the bowl under my bed. I don't know why. Obviously, the bowl had been placed there for that reason, but maybe it wasn't. I think it was a small plastic bowl, and I can't imagine that my mom would have given me such a small receptacle for puke, or throw-up, as she would have called it. So maybe I wasn't supposed to be puking in that bowl after all. For whatever reason, it ended up pushed under my bed out of sight, but not out of smell and that bowl stayed there, untouched and undiscovered, for a long time. Like, a really long time. 
long enough that by the time I rediscovered it, the puke had either evaporated or hardened into a crusty yuck clinging to the edges of the bowl. So then I took it to the kitchen and scrubbed the bowl. No, I didn't. I pushed it further under the bed. Why would I do that? Was it so hard to just go wash out the bowl? Surely not. But nonetheless, the bowl stayed under that bed for a long time before anything responsible was ever done about it. I don't even remember the outcome, but I have a vague memory of just throwing it in the garbage eventually. This ability to compartmentalize or just decide to put something out of your mind, even though you know it's there and eventually it's going to show up again, is both a blessing and a curse with the ADHD brain. I guess it's a form of denial, but it sounds fancier to say compartmentalize. It allows us to persevere in the face of what our brain is telling us is inevitable defeat. It allows us to forget previous failures and look forward to the next adventure with seemingly delusional optimism. It also prevents us from taking small preventative actions or even small restorative ones because we can put the issue out of our minds so effectively. When I was older, in my early 20s, my wife made a delicious apple dumpling dessert and we ate more than half of the pan together. The rest of it we left on the counter in the kitchen for later. Unfortunately, some water was spilled in the kitchen that day, with a good amount of it ending up in the dumpling pan, ruining the dessert. Rather than immediately trying to fix the situation or throwing the dessert in the garbage, we just left it sitting there for a few days. Then it started to look and smell funny, so we threw it in the garbage. No, we didn't. We put the plastic cover on the pan and snapped it down tight so we didn't have to smell it. After quite a few days of walking past this pan with a gnawing feeling that eventually I would have to deal with it, I decided to take some action. Unfortunately, long before I had made this decision, some household flies had made a similar decision and taken up residence in the decaying dessert. This happened before I had so cleverly solved the problem by putting a lid on it. This meant that when I finally pulled the lid off, I was met not only by the vilest of smells and sights, but also a host of freshly hatched maggots and flies, with the latter happily swarming into my face. It was this final assault on dignity that finally prompted me to take action, and I washed out the pan, in the garden, with the hose, on the jet setting from 15 feet away. This could easily have been prevented, of course, but that's just not how I roll. Just like the time I had a bowl of tuna salad in my car, originally taken for the hour-long drive to Vancouver where I worked, but abandoned in favor of much tastier fast food from a nearby mall. The tuna salad was moved from the front seat of honor to the back seat of neglect, and eventually the floor of forgetfulness. There it stayed for days. Okay, maybe weeks. After all, it had a lid on it, so I was mercifully shielded from the sight and smell, and it was buried under a pile of clutter. My wife has more than once described the interior of my cars as having the appearance of a homeless camp. Eventually, the strength of fermentation could not be held back by mere plastic and the smell began to permeate my car. So I then took immediate action and cleaned out the whole thing. Nope. I just compartmentalized and got used to it like a scoundrel. Eventually, I couldn't take it any longer. In the parking garage at the mall, near where I worked, I decided to investigate the situation fully and found that the liquefied nastiness had actually seeped out onto the floor mat, where the bowl lay upside down. I looked around the nearly empty garage, searching for a dumpster in which I could deposit my unwelcome package, but of course, there was none to be found. 
Despite the fact that I had been hosting this disgusting colony of bacteria for a few weeks, I determined that I couldn't bear one more second of it in my life and impulsively decided that the best solution was to remove the bowl and the floor mat together, place them on the ground in the garage, and then drive away from the scene of the crime as fast as possible. So I did. This tendency to procrastinate and compartmentalize is far beyond a conscious choice, though that may seem difficult to believe. Often it seems as if I'm watching someone else make the choice while feeling powerless to intervene, even though I am aware of the inevitable outcome. I realize that makes me sound like a really crazy person watching myself make decisions, but I think most people with ADHD will be able to relate. Chapter 18. Oh man, so stupid. In the late 1980s, my dad decided to take our family of nine, including my six-month-old baby brother, on a two-month trip, driving from one end of Canada to the other, stopping at many locales and interesting sites along the way. One of these was the Jellystone Park Camp Resort. As the name indicates, the campgrounds are based on the Yogi Bear cartoons, and my siblings and I were thrilled with the idea that Yogi himself would be making an appearance as part of the evening program. Did I mention that I was 11 years old at the time? It seems hard to believe now that at that age I would still be so enraptured by the promised appearance of a teenage kid in a Yogi Bear costume, but my naivete was part and parcel of my ADHD. As the evening progressed, I found myself impatient with the antics of the human performers and watched the side stage area, hoping for a glimpse of the mischievous snatcher of picnic baskets. Throughout this time, I fantasized what I would say to Yogi if I got the chance to meet him. Again, let me emphasize that I was an intelligent 11-year-old who was excited to make an impression on a stuffed animal. Finally, the moment arrived at the climax of the evening program and Yogi made his long-anticipated entrance to the delight of the campers. I remember that his costume was somewhat disappointing, but despite this brush with conscious awareness, the potential fame that awaited me following my interaction with the famous character was too intoxicating to be slowed down by a low-budget attempt at recreating the glory of Yogi Bear. I had decided upon my winning verbiage during the program, and as Yogi waded into the crowd to dole out high fives and silent hellos, I forged my way, trembling with anticipation through the sea of children, most of them not as tall as my chest. I reached out my hand to the famous Yogi Bear and said, brimming with pride, Hey, it's the Yogster. All I got was a silent response from an emotionally neutral stuffed Yogi head. But within that silent response, the seeds of intense shame were sown and instantly fertilized. I felt a wave of embarrassment wash over me that far outweighed, in retrospect, the offense that had created it. Reality became stark to me as I realized that this was not Yogi Bear, but a minimum wage camp employee. He was not impressed with my handy 80s lingo, but most likely amazed at my immaturity. How could I have been so swept up in the yogi hysteria? I chastised myself harshly and repeatedly, and I do not remember anything else from the evening. Chapter 19. Dumb in Love As I have previously mentioned, throughout my elementary school years, there was only one girl who was the object of my affection though my feelings remained unexpressed except for in typically awkward ways. For example, in grade two, Mrs. Anderson decided that it would be a good idea to create a newsletter to send home to keep parents up to speed on goings-on in the class. 
She also decided that it would be a good idea if each kid in the class drew a small self-portrait in a little frame. These framed portraits would then surround the outer edge of the newsletter. When it came to my turn, not only did I draw a wonderful self-portrait, I also decided to add to the portrait of my love. I'm not sure what I was planning, but it went horribly wrong, and for the rest of the year, the class newsletter included a picture of Jennifer with a beard. It really makes me laugh out loud as I write this, but at the time, I was not laughing. It was embarrassing. It made me seem like either a really bad kid vandalizing an innocent girl's drawing or a really dumb kid who just did dumb things. And really, why wouldn't Mrs. Anderson find a way to fix the mistake? Why make me and Jennifer live with it for the rest of the year? Another awkward time was in grade six when I got a valentine from Jennifer on Valentine's Day because that's when people give out valentines. But for some reason, it felt like I needed to include that detail in the sentence as if you might not know when or for what reason she had given me a valentine. Anyway... I wrote in big letters on the valentine, my favorite valentine, and made the mistake of leaving it lying on top of my desk for someone else to see. Someone who practiced the same amount of self-restraint as I did, who proceeded to tell Jennifer. She said nothing, but I felt like crawling into a little hole and hiding, because what could be worse than the girl I was in love with knowing about it? This reminds me of another thing that happened around the same time. Remember when I said that Jennifer was the only one for me? Well, that wasn't strictly true. There was also a girl at church, quite a few years older than I was, with whom I was quite entranced. One evening, our family went up to the church for a family dance, which is a weird idea in some ways for a whole family to go to a dance together. I guess it's weird if the reason for going to the dance was to check out girls, which of course it was. Almost immediately after I'd arrived at the dance, this girl, out of nowhere, came running up to me and grabbed my hand. I was about 11 years old, and she was probably 14 or 15. Keep in mind that I had fantasized many times about a moment such as this. So what did I do when the moment became a reality? I freaked out. She pulled my hand towards her, trying to draw me out onto the dance floor. I pulled back, saying I didn't want to go. She laughed and pulled harder, and I resisted even stronger. She gave it one last try, and instead of just saying I didn't want to, I wrenched my hand out of her grasp and yelled that I didn't want to and sprinted away, sobbing. Ouch. I'm sure she thought she had just made contact with a weirdo, and I was sure she had too. I ran to another part of the gym and tried to explain to myself just what the heck that was all about. To this day, I'm not totally sure. Anyway... Back to Jennifer. As I mentioned before, through the years, I had always dreamed that someday she would think of me as I had thought of her. But as we grew, it became apparent to me that this was not going to work out in my favor due to the presence of Nathan T. This brings us to one of the worst moments of my entire childhood. You might think I'm exaggerating, but I'm serious. I've always told this as a funny story and even wrote about it in a song. But each time I've sat down to write about it for this book, a giant block has appeared, an invisible hand restraining me from going down this particular memory lane. I suppose the event was much more harmful to me than I realized. It was the Christmas dance in grade 7. We had spent a lot of time together so far that year, me and Nathan, Jennifer, Rosie, Jessica, Heather, Garnet, and Tim as members of Mr. Yule's school rock band. On top of that, we spent a lot of time outside of class together, working on special projects and hanging out, 
so we had really gotten to know each other fairly well, or so I thought. A year earlier had come the fateful day when I'd heard Jennifer refer to Nathan as her boyfriend, but even then, my ability to compartmentalize served me well. I was able to almost willfully forget what I knew about Jennifer's feelings for Nathan and maintain the hope that I still had a shot. Weird. For a second there, I felt like I was writing or even reading some cheesy middle school romance novel, but then I remembered that this was real and it was my life, again with the denial. Anyway, in grade seven, we started having class dances, which is really one of the weirdest things if you think about it. During the regular course of our school existence, for the most part, the boys were separate from the girls. Of course, there was flirting and awkwardness, but mainly we kept our physical distance. Then, because it was some holiday like Halloween or Christmas, we brought chips to school, turned off the lights in the classroom, moved the desks to the edge, and stood facing each other with boys' hands on girls' waists and girls' hands on boys' shoulders doing the grade 7 shuffle. Step to the left with the left, tap to the left with the right, step to the right with the right, tap to the right with the left. We did this for a three-minute interval accompanied by poison or some other awesome hairband, and then parted ways as if it hadn't happened. But since this was the Christmas dance, it was actually held in the gym. I remember it very well. I was known as a bit of a crazy dancer, which I know is hard to believe given all the restraint I've demonstrated up to this point in the story. But it wasn't a frenzy of funky dancing that led to my pain in this instance. It was one slow dance, the last one of the day. Of course, Jennifer was slow dancing with Nathan, and I knew I had to put a stop to it. I couldn't just overtly approach them and elbow him out of the way, of course, though I would have loved to be that bold. Instead, I came up with the genius plan of making them feel uncomfortable enough that they would naturally separate from each other. I grabbed some mistletoe that was being used as a decoration and began harassing the other couples that dotted the darkened gym floor. I couldn't make a beeline straight for the happy couple because that would have been too obvious, so I started on the periphery and ran from couple to couple holding the mistletoe over their heads, causing them to squeal with mock horror and pull away from each other, running in some cases. Finally, I approached Nathan and Jennifer and held the mistletoe aloft, ready to plunge a knife into their obvious comfort with each other. To my absolute horror, instead of the squeal and run response, I watched as Nathan leaned down and Jennifer leaned in, eyes closed, and they kissed each other. This wasn't just a peck, either, like some other kids out on the playground whose kissing seemed like they were being asked to put their lips onto the backside of a horse. This was a real kiss, like a Hollywood romantic kiss. I was speechless. I felt like someone had punched me in the stomach and the head and many other painful places. Of course, I couldn't let on that this was the single most devastating moment in my life up to that point. After all, I was the class clown. I had put them up to it. How could I be upset? After all, I knew that they liked each other and that Jennifer had already made her choice, not that I was ever even in the running. I forced a laugh and quickly made my way to the gym door. I burst through it, out of the darkness and into the light. Of course, it felt like the opposite. I had descended from my moment of triumph to my ultimate failure in an instant. Perhaps the worst feeling of all was not the disappointment of having seen with my own eyes that my chances with Jennifer were gone forever, but that I was instrumental in my own downfall. I sat down heavily on a wooden bench in the hallway, all by myself, and stared at the opposite wall, 
while I heard the 80s rock ballad streaming muffled through the wall behind me. I cursed myself for the mistletoe idea. I blamed myself, reasoning that if I hadn't given them the opportunity, they never would have kissed. Of course, this wasn't true, but it sure felt true. It felt like my impulsiveness had once again done me in. As I write this story now, I feel faint pangs of the emotion that I felt on that day. But mostly, I feel sad that she couldn't see what a great kid I was, that it was actually her who missed out. That's not sour grapes. It's just growth on my part. Chapter 20 Seemed like a good idea. In Erie, there was everything that an active, imaginative, and impulsive kid in the 80s could want. As I have mentioned, nature was our playground, and we spent entire days outside exploring the world. Erie was also a ghost town, and there were remnants of its former existence everywhere. On the far side of our driveway was a broken-down concrete structure that I was told used to be a bakery before the Erie Hotel had burned to the ground, taking the bakery with it. There were ancient barns and a chicken coop and several old trucks that appeared to be from the World War II era, broken down and rusting in the grass field opposite our house. I spent a lot of time sitting behind the wheel of these trucks, pretending to be racing after bad guys or away from good guys, depending on my orientation of the moment. After we had lived there for several years, we decided to convert the empty fields and bakery area into a horse pasture, so my dad asked his friend, who had a bulldozer, to come by and clean the place up. When you have tons of concrete to get rid of, and nowhere to put it, the best solution seems to be to bury it, so that's what they did. This involved digging massive holes and moving literally tons of earth around in the field. We were in absolute heaven to be witnesses to this kind of stuff. Also cool was what was unearthed during this excavation project. As we boys went digging through the dirt piles and climbing in the deep holes, we began to come across fully intact glass bottles, many of which had glass stoppers still in place. The bottles were empty, but they likely used to hold alcohol that was served and sold at the Erie Hotel prior to the fire. The coolest find, however, belonged to me. When I first dug it out of the ground, I couldn't even tell what it was, so of course I assumed, as most kids do when they dig something out of the ground, that I had found some sort of dinosaur bone. Soon, however, it became apparent as I scraped away the years of dirt and mud that what I had was actually a vintage fire hose nozzle, clearly left behind from the great hotel fire. When I think back on this find now, I grit my teeth with regret, wishing I'd known what I had and that I had taken better care of it. Why do I feel that way? Because when we moved from Salmo to the Lower Mainland in 1989, the nozzle was lost in the move. I assumed it was the movers who'd stolen it, but it is probably just as likely that I'd left it somewhere and it hadn't even gotten packed in the first place. It may sound like hyperbole, but it really is one of the great regrets of my life that I wasn't able to hang on to that piece of history. Anyway, we made great recreational use of everything Erie had to offer, and this included the train tracks that ran through the village not more than 50 feet from our front door, because of course they did. Why not have a completely unguarded and unprotected railroad crossing running through a remote village within less than a stone's throw of the houses in the neighborhood? And of course, in keeping with the close supervision that is attendant in all of these stories, we were free to wander up and down these railroad tracks for miles in either direction. It was the quickest way to walk to the lake, that's for sure. It is a miracle that no one was ever hurt by the train. 
especially when you consider one of our favorite pastimes with the train was to lay pennies on the rails. When the train would pass over them, they were flattened into shiny copper ovals, not even recognizable as coins. Of course, if you've learned anything about me by now, you will know that we weren't long content to just put simple pennies on the tracks. We needed to take things to the next level. This is where things get foggy with the collective memory of my brothers and me. I asked them for input on this story before I began writing it, because I don't want this book to be full of lies. There is a diversion of opinion and memory, so I will tell the story with the caveat that my brain may have recreated history to some degree. Having said that, I do have some definite corroborating evidence. Anyway, our neighbor Rick, who was several years older than we were and lived up the road, I think it was his dad who built the BMX track for us, had access to building materials and stuff that we either didn't have or couldn't use. My memory is that someone suggested that we get some of my dad's 22 bullets and put them on the track, and of course, no one thought this might be a bad idea. Part of me thinks that couldn't have been the case. Did we really have access to bullets? I know we were unsupervised, but to that degree? My brothers don't remember this at all, but I do. I wonder if maybe Rick's dad had some sort of construction materials that were explosive, like little blasting caps or something. In my mind, it was a bullet. Whatever it was, we laid it on the track and stood back, though not very far back, to watch the event unfold. As the train passed over our item, I remember a loud and surprising bang, and then looking down at my leg and seeing something metallic implanted just under the skin at the bottom of my right thigh. There wasn't a lot of blood, and I don't remember pain, but then no one really remembers pain, do they? I remember digging whatever it was out of my leg and feeling like I couldn't complain to my mom about the wound, as I was apt to do, for fear that she would be upset about whatever we had done to cause it in the first place. To this day, I still have a scar in that part of my leg, in the same shape as the original wound. If this story is remotely accurate to the way I remember it, then it was probably the single most reckless moment of my childhood, and that's saying something. Chapter 21 Remember those really dumb kids? When living in a ghost town like Erie, you have limited options when you want to hit the town. The first step in hitting the town in Salmo is to leave town. My dad worked about a half hour away in the city of Trail. I just looked up how long the drive actually was because when I was a kid it felt like hours. I remember riding in our old brown van, staring up at the little dots on the ceiling until my eyes started playing tricks on me and the dots appeared to be in 3D, like those pictures that were all the rage in the early 90s. The ones that seemed to just be abstract until something went weird in your eyes and then a 3D image would appear to the endless frustration of those beside you who couldn't quite get the trick to work. My eyes used to do that in the van on the seemingly never-ending drive to trail. Magic eye. That's what those pictures are called. Now that I think of it, those magic eye pictures are a perfect metaphor for what math was like for me, not just as a kid, but even now. It's like the answer, or even the right equation, is just on the tip of my conscious awareness, but I can't quite get it into focus enough to see what it is. Anyway, driving to trail. You know how your body gets conditioned into a routine with simple things because you just always do certain things at certain times? I went through a time as a kid where my brain was unfortunately conditioned to really need to pee about halfway between Erie and Trail. There was no stopping the Levitt bus, however, once it was on its way, so this led to countless times pulling into the parking lot of the church or the mall where my dad's office was, 
with me literally bouncing up and down on the seat like a pogo ball. Remember those? That was another trend from the early 90s. What was the attraction? A more difficult version of the pogo stick? Anyway, I would just be bouncing away, staring at my 3D ceiling and grabbing my crotch. It actually makes me laugh out loud to picture this in my mind right now. I wonder what my mom thought looking back in the rearview mirror, especially since I wasn't the only one who was stuck in this routine. Once we got through the little towns of Fruitvale and Montrose, we came around a corner and began the descent into trail, which stretched out in front of us like a sprawling metropolis. At least that's what it felt like to some hillbillies from Erie. It's funny to look back on now that the kids from Trail used to make fun of us kids from Salmo and Erie for being country kids. But even today, 30 years later, Trail has fewer than 8,000 residents. We typically made the trek to Trail for one of three reasons. We were going to the mall to do some shopping at Woolco, going to church, or visiting my dad's office upstairs in the mall where he worked for West Kootenai Power. I have no idea why we would want to go to my dad's office or what he did there. We only ever went with him after hours, so we had free reign of the place. But it's not like there was a ton of excitement to be had in an accounting office after dark. I do remember the computer room, which was essentially a large section of the second floor full of large, humming computer servers. Of course, this was the 1980s, and I had no idea what I was really seeing. It just seemed high-tech, and memories of it are tied to the Superman movie featuring Richard Pryor, where the lady gets sucked into the giant computer in the cave and then becomes some creepy robot lady. That one gave me some nightmares for a while. Anyway, when we weren't racing around my dad's office, lighting fires behind the church, or shopping for shoes and tank tops at Woolco, we might occasionally have found ourselves enjoying the treat of a lifetime. A trip to McDonald's. The main feature in Trail was, and probably still is, the Kaminko smelter. I just love the word smelter. It so perfectly fits what a smelter does. It smells. I have no idea what a smelter does. Okay, now I do because I looked it up. Apparently, it uses heat to extract metal from ore, which I think is rock. The thing I just read says that one of the other elements that is usually attached to the metal is sulfur, which explains why, when we crested the hill leading down into trail, the first thing I noticed was the smell of farts. But not just normal farts. It was the smell of farts mixed with the heavenly aroma of McDonald's, because right smack in the middle of the Juanita Mall complex was the only McDonald's for miles. For our large family of hillbillies from Erie, McDonald's was the ultimate in fine dining, and it was a rare occasion when we got to eat there. One of those times really stands out in my mind, though thankfully today, the only scars that remain from the incident are in my memory. It was a dark evening, so it must have been in the winter time, and we had just finished our meal as a family, when my brother Mike and I decided that we needed to go pee before we began our trek home. Makes me wonder why we never did that before we left for trail in the first place, which would have saved us all that time bouncing on the bench seats in the van and contemplating the social impact of walking into church late having peed our pants on the way there. That was some mental torture. Anyway, we headed off to the bathroom together, and as we were leaving, Mike somehow managed to get his fingers shut in the door. Not on the side of the door where the handle is, but on the side where the hinges are. This was a thick, solid, heavy door, so I can only imagine the physics, because I never took physics, that resulted in Mike's fingers being crushed so badly. I heard him screaming and wondered what the heck was happening. He was stuck, 
panicking as he felt the pain stab through him, and it took me a second to figure out what was going on. I rushed to open the door and stopped the pain, freeing his fingers from the trap successfully. His screams and howls had attracted the attention of a few McDonald's employees who came rushing to see what had happened. Never a dull shift at the Trail McDonald's, I'm sure. I was feeling heroic as I stood there holding the door open and explaining to the staff what had happened. This feeling of pride and heroism, and compassion for Mike, rapidly disappeared as I felt my own bewildering but intense pain suddenly begin in my fingers. I looked to see what was happening and was shocked to discover that despite rescuing Mike from his predicament only a few minutes earlier, I had now found myself in the exact same situation, with the giant heavy door of death crushing my fingers on the edge right next to the hinges. There was no playing it cool, however, no way to hide my mistake, as the pain quickly overrode any embarrassment and I began to scream and howl in exactly the same way Mike had, leading to the same response from the staff who must have thought this was some sort of prank or a field trip of special kids who clearly needed more supervision. I can assure you it was definitely not the former, although the latter wouldn't be far off. The staff were great, though. There was only a minimal amount of chuckling as they led us both back into the kitchen, which felt like I was being shown the inside of an Egyptian pyramid, so great was the wonder and mystery. I was finally getting to see where all the magic happened. They gave us each a cup full of ice chips and using their highly advanced first aid training, told us to stick our fingers in the ice. Once the pain had started to subside, and the miracle of the McDonald's kitchen had worn down, that old familiar feeling returned with a vengeance. Embarrassment. As bad as the pain in my fingers was, the pain of doing something so dumb was far greater. I noticed the smiles and snickers of the staff, and I felt the embarrassment of my dad as we were brought out of the kitchen, with all of the customers' eyes cast in our direction. I felt a bit like I was being led out onto the circus floor, the dazzling Levitt Moron show for all to see. In actual fact, most of them probably didn't notice us at all, but it was burned into my brain very deeply that once again, I had blown it. Chapter 22 He's so nice and also a jerk. My grade 7 year at Salmo Elementary School was a year of great highs and profound lows. I discovered music for the first time, real popularity, great embarrassment, and of course, girls. Well, actually I discovered girls in kindergarten. It was also the first year that I was involved in any kind of athletic endeavor. I was tall for my age, as were a few of my friends, so when the school formed a basketball team and we played against other elementary schools, we dominated. When you have three kids who are almost six feet tall in grade seven, and the hoops are only eight feet tall, it is a recipe for disaster for the other teams. Anyway, I tried all sports that year as they came up on the calendar, too naive to realize that most people aren't good at everything. The sport that was probably the worst match for me physically and mentally was cross-country running. This didn't stop me from joining the team, of course. Any excuse to get out of school or do anything extracurricular was something I would gladly sign up for, even if it meant limping along, drenched in sweat, wanting to puke while struggling to breathe. Wow, when I say it that way, it really says a lot about my feelings towards school at the time. Of course, as a big, lumbering kid, I was hardly nimble enough or blessed with enough endurance to make my mark as a cross-country runner. I remember one particular race, however— one that has stuck with me for a variety of reasons. It was an overcast, wet day, and when the race began, I started plodding along, quickly making my move towards my usual spot at the back of the pack. After completing a few laps of the route, 
I was running alongside my good friend Garnet when we came to a 90-degree turn in the track that was covered with fallen and decomposing leaves. This made for some slippery conditions, but of course, at the pace we were moving, it was not much of a hazard. However, one young runner from another school, in his determined effort to place well, went hurtling past us as we entered the turn. His feet planted on the wet leaves, and his momentum caused him to lose his footing. As the leaves skated out from under him, he crashed to the ground, injuring his hands, shoulder, head, and pride. Garnet and I were nice guys. I had won the Citizenship Award almost every year in my class throughout elementary school. Of course, the one year I didn't win it, I didn't take it well. Perhaps this was a sign of things to come. Anyway, on this particular occasion, Garnet and I stopped running, which was not a difficult thing to do since we were hardly blazing along, and helped our fallen comrade to his feet. Because of the seriousness of his injuries and the distance from the starting line and all of the adults, we felt that it would be important to stay with him and help him back to safety. We recognized that we had no hope of doing well in the race anyway, so it was not a big sacrifice for us to essentially drop out. Thus, we supported our fellow runner physically and emotionally as we carried his weight and his spirits back to his coach. At that point, we continued on with the race, although our chances of anything remotely resembling a respectable time were long gone. Garnet and I took the opportunity to have a good conversation about who knows what, probably astrophysics and life goals, but possibly girls. We walked and we jogged, and somewhere along the line we realized that we were the last two people who would be finishing the race. In a show of solidarity, and in a decision consistent with our noble actions from earlier in the race, we decided upon a pact that we would cross the finish line in last place together. We decided that that would be the fairest thing to do. I don't remember who suggested this idea, but I have a bad feeling it was me. Why do I say bad feeling? I say that because of what I did next. After we had agreed upon this finishing strategy, our conversation moved back to other subjects. We began jogging as we reached the halfway point of the final lap, and it was here that my insecure, emotionally immature nature emerged, rather horrifically in my view. While jogging along step for step with Garnet, I decided I did not want to come last. Of course, I didn't let Garnet know this. Unless, of course, you consider my suddenly sprinting away from him towards the finish line without any warning a form of explanation. I was bigger and stronger than Garnet, and this allowed me to push harder at the end and finish in a glorious second-to-last place, leaving the ignominy of last overall to my good friend. I remember the look of betrayal on his face as we made eye contact following his finish. I could hardly look at him. I felt so ashamed. Chapter 23. You Don't Belong Here My grade 7 year, as I may have mentioned, but I don't remember mentioning, but I must have mentioned, was the best year of my entire school career. Now, I'm not sure if I should say why, because I might have said it already and then you'd be listening to it again for no reason. Although, I suppose it's possible that you're like me, and might need to hear things more than once in order for them to really sink in. It's also possible that you don't care why it was such a great year and you just want me to get on with the story. Anyway, I seem to remember spending a lot of time in grade 7 outside the classroom. Of course, we did regular classwork. I know this because I remember having to do a book report on a novel that I read and really liked, but when it came time to do a one-paragraph summary of the novel, I had no idea where to start. So, I borrowed my older brother Spencer's book report from the previous year. I had no premeditated intention to cheat. I just needed a hint on how to go about condensing a novel into a paragraph. 
Spencer had gotten 100% on his book report the previous year, so I figured it would be a good template. I have no idea where I found this report or why it was still kicking around our house. Anyway, I began by copying his first sentence, and before I knew it, I had plagiarized the entire thing. Of course, I was innocent enough to think that I could now hand this work in to the same teacher as he had, and no one would think anything of it. So I did. It felt good to hand in my homework, finished on time, though worked on at the last minute, of course. It was a few days later that Mr. Ewell called me over to his desk during class. I walked over and was surprised to see that he had also kept a copy of my brother's report from the year before. As I was reading your report, he said, I realized it looked very familiar to me, but I couldn't figure it out. And then I remembered where I had seen it before. This is when he dramatically pulled a copy of Spencer's report out of his desk drawer. He said that my version was identical to Spencer's, although he conceded that my grammar and spelling were much better, and that because I had basically cheated, he had no choice but to give me only half marks. The reality, of course, is that he did have a choice. He could have given me nothing. He was well within his teacher's rights to give me a zero for cheating, but instead he gave me 50%. I think on some level he recognized my naivete and believed that I hadn't really realized what I was doing. As I said, I spent a lot of time outside the classroom working on special projects, practicing for the band, and clumsily flirting with the girls. Toward the end of the year, I found myself in the small town of Nelson. That felt like a giant city to us Salmo kids, for some sort of brain Olympics. We had to build bridges out of popsicle sticks and other similar brain events, but in great irony, I had no idea that this event was for the smart kids. I really thought I was there because my friends were there. I hung out with Tim and followed his lead and wandered around wondering what was going on. This was the disparity between my view of myself and others' view of me. My teacher clearly saw that I was capable of representing the class at an event like this, but I had no idea what was even happening and thought I was there because I was likable. The damage to my identity had been repeatedly inflicted so long previous to this that even the successes of this year and the recognition of those whose job it was to recognize were not enough to shake loose the belief that I was not smart. Chapter 24. Try to follow along this time. Just as I was reaching the height of my popularity in Salmo, my parents dropped a life-changing bombshell on us. We were moving. We had lived in the Kootenays since I was four years old. It was really the only home that I had solid memories of. I had never even once thought of living somewhere else. Needless to say, I was crushed. We were leaving our hillbilly homestead, our mountains, rivers, lakes, and bike jumps for the suburbs of Langley, B.C. I didn't know anything about where I was going or what to expect. I only knew that my friends would be left behind, probably never to be seen again. Complicating matters was the fact that the real estate market in Langley was slightly different from the one in Salmo. We sold our large house and property and bought a much smaller house with no property while paying almost 300% more. I didn't have to be a math genius to know that things were going to be tight. In addition, our first week in the new town, our house was not quite ready to move in. This meant that our family of nine was forced to live in two adjacent motel rooms just off the bypass in downtown Langley. We did our back-to-school shopping at Value Village, and I combed through the cast-offs of other people, trying desperately to create an ensemble that would allow my social standing to pick up right where it had left off in Salmo. Of course, this was 1989, and without the internet to connect me to the bigger world out there, 
I was culturally at least a couple years behind. I had no idea what TV shows people were talking about, what music they were listening to, and certainly not what clothes they were wearing. One nearly humiliating event occurred not long into my grade 8 year, as I was walking from one class to another with a girl who actually happened to be one of the cool kids. I'm not sure how I got in that position, but I do know that I was really nervous to be in her company. As with most of the cool and popular kids at that time, and in that particular part of Langley, this girl was obsessed with clothes. Not just with what they looked like, but with what brand name they were, where they were bought, and how much they cost. I got this shirt from Le Chateau, and these jeans from Guess, and these shoes from blah blah blah. Of course, I pretended to know the significance of all these brands and stores, even though I had never heard of any of them. Now, I should mention that Value Village has had an image makeover in the years since I was the new kid in town, as it is now considered somewhat chic. Can I even use that word without sounding like I'm pretending? To get a good deal and to wear throwback-style clothing. Back in 1989, however, Value Village had not yet come into its own and was very much considered the place where the poor people and losers shopped. I was able to pick up on this subtle distinction when kids at school used Value Village as an insult when they were going on about their daily duties of picking on the less fortunate. Even though I kind of liked the clothes I had picked out, funny, I almost said that I rather like them because I'm currently watching a lot of Sherlock on Netflix and my brain has the tendency to get so absorbed in fiction that it can sometimes lose the line between fantasy and reality. Anyway, I liked the clothes that I had picked out, a plain white turtleneck and some vertically striped pants that I don't think even had pockets, but I also knew that I had to keep their origin a secret for fear of sliding even further down the food chain in the jungle that was Fort Langley Junior Secondary School. So, while I was walking with this girl, and she was inventorying her wardrobe and social status to me, she looked at me, pointed at my clothes, and said, Value Village, right? I tell you, my heart must have literally stopped. Even as I write the story all these years later, I can feel the tightness in my chest as I realized that my secret was out. I began to stammer out a reply, about to naively admit that she was right, not fully comprehending the damage that my honesty would do when she laughed in a carefree way and said, I'm just joking, of course. And then we continued on our way. I wanted to be sick. It was a close call that allowed me to see my place in the hierarchy without having to feel the pain in full. You might be wondering what this story has to do with ADHD. Nothing, really. I'm just trying to set the scene for what a fish out of water I was at this point in my life. Whatever need I had for attention and whatever insecurities I had hidden up to this point were being dragged out into what felt like the world's hottest spotlight. I felt like I was drinking from the fire hose, which is a great scene in the Weird Al classic UHF, by the way. When it came to trying to keep up with what was cool and what wasn't and desperately trying to learn the boundaries of normal before accidentally falling off the edge into the bottomless abyss of lame. One of the cool kids and I have to smile as I write this, was in grade 10. I won't name him because I don't want him to get mad at me. He was in grade 10, but he had a full mustache and long, beautiful, blonde hair. I mean beautiful in the sense that it was flowing with a slight curl and bangs that fell down into his eyes and a blonde mustache. Are you serious? This was one of the cool kids? He had Salmo written all over him. I was standing behind him one time in the lineup for the drinking fountain. The fountain was located in the main lobby of the school, and there were always a million things going on there between classes. 
I was absentmindedly staring at the back of this guy's head and probably inadvertently eavesdropping at the same time, but I was really just zoned out. All of a sudden, this kid turned on me and snarled, Did you hear me say that? I was shocked out of my trance and replied, Say what? This was not convincing enough for him, so he turned fully to face me and barked, If you tell anyone, I'll kill you! I assured him that I had no intention of telling anyone anything because I hadn't actually heard anything he had said, which was true. This seemed to work, and he stalked off with his friend. It took me a few minutes to figure out what had just happened. Somewhere, in the back of my mind, my brain became aware that I had overheard him give his locker combination to his friend. I must have appeared to be listening in, and he'd assumed that I was going to use this information for evil. This incident is such an interesting combination of the mysterious workings of the ADHD brain. On the one hand, the chaos of the busy hallway had spread my focus so thin I was not aware of how obviously I had honed in on one particular piece of the noise. But at the same time, even though I had honed in on that one piece of the noise, I was spread so thin that I didn't even get the information in real time. Also, my brain was able to go back in time and process what had just happened guided by the unconscious sense that I had heard something that I wasn't supposed to hear. My brain was then able to connect the dots and figure out what that piece of information was, though it couldn't remember the information specifically. And of course, in the moment, this was all a mystery, and my conscious experience consisted of wondering what the heck he was talking about. You don't realize how many times I had to resist the urge to speak in the voice of Sherlock Holmes as I was writing that paragraph. So many times. Of course, As wonderful and interesting and mysterious as my brain is, it would also be nice to have been aware in the moment and therefore retain the ability to eavesdrop without detection. Sometimes the thrill of being different seems much smaller than the relief of being normal. Chapter 25. All Brawn and No Brains As you have no doubt gathered from several of the stories so far, I was definitely drawn to aggressiveness as a kid. If something could be smashed, crushed, burned, or otherwise destroyed, I was first in line to wreak havoc. Of course, I wouldn't have been able to wait in line if that was required, and if you think about it, what a funny picture that would be, waiting in line to wreak havoc. But now that I say that, I remember a rugby fundraiser at my junior high school where people could pay to have 10 swings with a sledgehammer on an older beater car, and people were literally waiting in line to wreak havoc. I also remember being very unsatisfied with the amount of damage that guys were able to do with a sledgehammer. And the rugby coach, Mr. Smith, must have felt the same, because when it was his turn, he broke the rules by rolling up the driver's side window and destroying it with a flailing blow, sending bits of glass showering over the assembled students, much to their delight rather than horror. These were really my people, in a way. Mr. Smith was an odd cat. He had a bit of a nervous tick where he would squint and bare his teeth, I say it that way intentionally because it wasn't exactly a smile, but it wasn't threatening either. Anyway, he was mostly pretty chill, although I remember a specific time in grade 9 social studies with one girl who was a repeat offender for the terrible crime of talking in class. I guess Mr. Smith was having a bad day or he just had enough, but instead of sending her out or even just giving her a detention, he calmly walked over to her desk, picked up her binder, opened the outside door, The class was located in a portable, so the doors opened directly to the outside rather than into the hallway, walked out to the top of the short staircase and energetically flung her binder away towards the athletic field, 
leaving a beautiful rainbow of loose-leaf paper cascading down all around him. He then loudly invited the girl to follow her binder and not come back. At the time, I'm sure there was a part of me that found this entertaining. After all, I was a kid whose default setting was destroy. However, I do remember feeling a stab of sympathy for her, as she was already a kid who was excluded and ostracized, and I could tell even at that young age that her home life was probably not the greatest. Anyway, not sure how I got onto that subject. Oh yes, destruction and havoc. My favorite pastime as a kid was wrestling my dad. There's a family photo of me and some of my brothers attacking my dad in the living room, and you can see the look of pure joy on my face. Nothing could be better as far as I was concerned. So naturally, when I was exposed to the growing, soon-to-be-exploding sport of professional wrestling, I was instantly hooked. The massive muscles, the colorful stretchy pants, the mullets and mustaches, the bad guys, and of course, the smashing, kicking, slamming, and punching were like the nectar of the gods for someone wired like me. And wouldn't you know it, my dad liked it too. I became obsessed with professional wrestling, begging for my parents to buy me magazines and merchandise and even attend an event in Spokane, Washington, two hours away. The less sensitive adults in my life loved to point out that wrestling was fake, but I refused to believe it. I mean, even as a 12-year-old, otherwise intelligent kid, I was convinced that Ricky the Dragon Steamboat really did have his esophagus crushed over the steel railing from a flying elbow delivered by Randy Macho Man Savage. I remember the first time I began to consider that this might not all be real, when Macho Man and Hulk Hogan, former allies, were tangled in a love triangle featuring Macho Man's wife, the lovely Elizabeth. Elizabeth was caught in the crossfire during a match and was crushed by a 250-pound muscle man, necessitating her removal from ringside via stretcher. Her husband, the Macho Man, didn't seem concerned with her injuries and continued to wrestle while Hogan, the real American, was so preoccupied that he left Macho Man behind to go and tend to the fallen Elizabeth in the locker room. The cameras found Hogan weeping beside Elizabeth's stretcher, praying that she would be okay, while the Macho Man was nowhere in sight. It was at this precise moment where Hulk Hogan, the ultimate champion, stood crying beside a stretcher that the thought first crossed my mind that this didn't seem to be genuine. Again, though, I was able to compartmentalize that growing awareness and put it out of my mind, allowing myself to fully embrace the engineered image of Macho Man as the bad guy. Even as my awareness of wrestling's fakeness grew, it did nothing to dampen my burning desire to be a professional wrestler once I reached physical maturity. As soon as I had the opportunity, I began lifting weights in my home. We had a rickety little bench and those old-fashioned plastic weights filled with cement or sand or something. I read muscle magazines and practiced posing in front of the mirror, and when I began junior high school in grade 8, I was quick to sign up for the wrestling team. I knew that there would be no funky costumes or angry speeches delivered into the camera, and that there would be no punching or kicking. I knew by this point that these guys were mostly just actors, but it still didn't dim my idea that professional wrestling was my true destiny. The wrestling coach, Mr. Leung, was also my science teacher, and I imagine he was happy at the prospect that a kid my size, 5 foot 10 and 140 pounds in grade 8, was signing up for the team. Little did he know how much his patience would be tested by my inability to internalize his coaching. I should say that I have no negative memories of Mr. Leung at all. I remember him as very patient and relaxed. I recently ran into him again 25 years after we first met, as he attended a seminar I was presenting on helping kids with ADHD. All these years later, Mr. Leung is still trying to help kids, now as a principal of an elementary school. 
The thing about me as a wrestler is that I had some natural gifts. My aforementioned aggression was definitely one. I was naturally strong even before weightlifting became part of my life, and I was big. In wrestling, athletes are separated into categories based on weight and age. There weren't that many kids my age who were my weight other than kids who were really overweight. I was pretty much made of muscle at that point, though I didn't have defined abs, which of course is the sole defining characteristic of someone who's in great shape. So wrestling chubby kids was very easy for me. Also, I was the only one my age in my weight class on our wrestling team. So when it came time to practice the techniques that were being taught, I always had the advantage of outweighing my opponent, which made things much easier for me. I remember wrestling a kid who was two years older than I was and the eventual provincial champion in the 120-pound weight class. But because I outweighed him by more than 40 pounds, I beat him easily. We would spend our entire practice learning various attacking and defending techniques and then be given an opportunity to implement what we had learned. Very typical of the ADHD brain, my wrestling learning consisted of grasping the basic takedown moves and then making up the rest as I went. This is how I have learned to play most games and sports, and it's also the way I read self-help books. Read a few chapters in and then say, yeah, yeah, I got it. Anyway, because of my size and strength, I could get away with this until I ran into someone who was of equal proportions who actually had learned some skills, at which point I would be pummeled into defeat. Following my mediocre first season of wrestling, I was approached by the wrestling coach and asked if I wanted to attend the BC School Sports Summer Camp for wrestling. I was honored to be asked to attend, thinking that it was an indication of my prowess, but then I found out that someone else had been asked first and had not been able to go, so I had been the backup choice. While this stung my ego a bit, there was no way I was going to tell anyone that I was the backup. I was able to compartmentalize the disappointment and tell myself a different story so that I could feel proud of the accomplishment. I spent a week on the campus of BCIT, learning from high-level coaches and surrounded by high-level wrestlers and athletes. At the end of the camp, there was a small tournament. I remember flailing around and out-muscling an opponent just as one of the coaches stopped by my mat to observe. I was thinking he'd be impressed by my victory. However, he stood and stared with his head cocked to one side and then said, You definitely have one of the most unorthodox styles I've ever seen. Despite his attempt at subtle reframing, his message was clear to me. What the heck are you doing? That is not what we taught you. Again, I found a way to reframe the sting into a backhanded compliment, making an effort to interpret it as praise for my creativity and ingenuity. Armed with no new wrestling ability, but 20 more pounds of muscle and bone, I signed up for the wrestling team again the next year. It went exactly the same way as before, with very little, if any, absorption of coaching and technique, but plenty of kids pushed to the mat. Until my final match, that is. There was this one kid who was the same size and strength as I was, but he had learned how to wrestle somewhere along the way. He also had an aggressive streak that made me look like Gandhi. In the gold medal match of the Fraser Valley Championship, I was overmatched and I knew it. My last wrestling memory is of holding my opponent off with a neck bridge as he methodically worked to destabilize me and throw me off balance with my shoulders inching ever closer to the mat. I remember peeking over at Mr. Leung, who was kneeling at the side of the mat, along with a few other guys from the team. He was repeatedly shouting instructions for me to escape my predicament, but I had literally no idea what he was talking about. I had a vague sense that it was something we had practiced, and that it was something I should have known how to do, and even in the heat of this moment, I took time to introspect on what a dummy I was, and how disappointed Mr. Leung must have been with me as a learner, let alone as a wrestler. 
Following that defeat, I quit the wrestling team, reasoning that it was too much effort for too little payback. 